Well, we have arrived at the end of the Ten Commandments. You've made it all the way through the summer, and we're winding up with the very last one, uh, which probably gets overshadowed a lot by the other nine. The ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus wrote, Do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not. Remember that what you have now was once among the things you hoped for. That fits well with this last of the Ten Commandments. And as we have done with the other nine, we're going to read it out loud together in unison. So, let's do so. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So what does the word covet mean? I mean, you know, does that happen very often in your general conversation that you use the word covet? I got to be honest, I don't think it hardly ever occurs in, uh, in conversation with me. A lot of times it'd be a spiritual discussion, and especially when you're talking about the Ten Commandments, but other than that, we don't talk about this word, covet. The word itself comes from the Hebrew word, word, root word for desire. That in itself, by the way, is not a bad thing. God gave us the capacity to desire certain things in life. This command does not condemn the desire to have a husband or a wife or a house or a car or friends or even a donkey, if you so choose. I used to joke that if God ever made coveting okay, I had a whole list already. But that really was a misuse of the term. I was really talking about desires. What this 10th commandment prohibits is a passionate longing not for a house like our neighbor's house, but for our neighbor's house. And with a spirit of resentment that our neighbor has it, and we don't. And the word house, as you, as you saw in the commandment, it says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house, period. And, and then it went, you shall not cover your, neighbor, your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, his maidservant, his doctor. That's a description of what is meant by house. House is not the physical structure, it's, it's the household. It's what belongs to your neighbor. In other words, you must not desire Mr. Jones's wife, or house, or car, or donkey if he has one. As a matter of fact, it even infers that we are not to covet Mr. Jones's lifestyle. Author Albert Barnes comments on the last five of the commandments. And you know what those are. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness or lie, and you shall not covet. And this is what he says. The sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments forbid us to injure our neighbor in deed. The ninth forbids us to injure him in word, and the tenth in thought. No human eye can see the coveting heart. It is witnessed only by him who possesses it and by him to whom all things are open. When you covet... Only you and God know what's happening. And there's something insidious about a sin that is mental and therefore invisible to everybody else around us. It's perhaps more deadly than the preceding commandments for that very reason. You can do in your mind what you'd never do in front of people who are watching. And that is why this last commandment is so vitally important. Because what starts in the mind often then translates to our actions, our deeds, our words. Murder 
adultery, theft, and lying all begin here before it happens physically or happens verbally. Thoughts precede action. And, and, and here's the fearful thing. When you covet your neighbor's life, it may lead you to murder your neighbor so that you can have what is his or to commit adultery with your neighbor's spouse because you can't find another way to deal with your passion or to steal from your neighbor so that you have the fine possessions that are his or lie about your neighbor in order to incriminate him so that he goes to prison and you can take what was his. You see how it works? It almost works in reverse order from 10 backwards. What you think when you sin in your mind, it leads to the actions and the words. I'm here to tell you, God will never make coveting okay because a covetous attitude stands in direct contrast with the character of God and the second half of the great commandment which says, and love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor and covet what he has at the same time. Now you might be thinking, well, just, just exactly who is this neighbor we're talking about here? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I still think of neighbor as one who lives close by. Uh, we, most of us live in a neighborhood. Why is it called a neighborhood? Because it's filled with neighbors, the people that live close by. That, that's always the first thing that comes to my mind. But of the 157 times that the word neighbor appears in Scripture, only five. Only five times does it describe someone who is close by. The other times, the word is used to describe someone who is an equal to us, a fellow countryman, or someone who is in need regardless of their race or culture. The better question to be would be, who isn't my neighbor, according to the Bible? Because really, that's all-inclusive. Everybody's my equal. Some are my countrymen, some are not, but all of us are in need. So how do I honor this 10th commandment and love God and love others and avoid breaking this 10th commandment? Well, I've got an easy answer that's not easy, especially in our culture. The easy part is identifying the answer, and the answer is contentment. The hard part is learning how to live contentedly. The virtue of contentment isn't about coming to grips with what we don't possess. It's the positive. Contentment is being satisfied with what we do possess. It's not that sour look that says, all right, I'll get along with what I don't have. I sure wish I had what he had. That's, that's not it. Contentment is saying, I am comfortable. I am satisfied with who I am and where I am and with what I have and what God has given me. And you say, well, you know, this is a really hard thing today. You know, it's harder today than it ever has been. No, no, it's not. It's hard today. Yeah, I, I get that. But it's not any harder than it's ever been. This is one of those battles that we have fought ever since the beginning of mankind. You go back to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He writes this, Then I observe that most people are motivated to success by their envy of their neighbors. But this too is meaningless like a chasing after the wind. Do, do you, you understand what Solomon says? He says, most people are envious of what their neighbors have. That's what drives them to succeed, to covet and to become envious of what others have. And we do not breeds attitudes that run contrary to the character of God and what God wants out of us. 
Now, if you happen to be a college student here today, not only are we thrilled to death to have you here, and, and for some of you to have you back, we, we missed you while you were gone. But, but it is at your point in life when this really starts to, to take hold. You know, you graduate from high school, you move out of mom and dad's house, and you're kind of out from under their provision, and, and you start looking down the road, and you start planning ahead, and you start thinking about a career, and you start thinking about what's going to happen. And, and the world says, in order to be somebody, or in order to have these things, or to be successful, you got to look out for number one, and a whole ensuing list of attitudes that begin to develop, if we're not careful. That's why this commandment, again, is so important. Here's the problems that we deal with most of the time. And these are the attitudes that keep us from being content. Here's the first one. It all depends on me. It all depends on me. If anything's going to happen in my life, boy, it all depends on me. If I believe that, if I believe that it all depends on me in order to get ahead, I'm never going to be content. This pull yourself up by your own bootstraps may be an American ideal, but sometimes it runs contrary to scriptures. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't take responsibility for our lives or that we shouldn't work hard in our lives. That's not my point. But when we think it all depends on us, it leaves God totally out of the picture. Now, God wants us to be responsible. God wants us to do our best, but God desperately wants us to depend on him. Why, why do you think that God commanded the Israelites when they were in the wilderness, only take enough manna, that food that God provided every morning, only take enough for today? It, it, don't take more than your, what you can use today. And when the Israelites did, it, the, what was left over was eaten by bugs and was nasty. And they couldn't, they couldn't use it anyway. They threw it out. God said, I will give you fresh manna every morning. Just take enough for today. Depend on me. That's what he's saying. I'll take care of you. Depend on me. Now, taken to the extreme, this attitude can cause someone to start hoarding things out of fear. That's really what it is. We hoard because we're afraid of tomorrow. What if I don't have this? And what if I don't have that? We start stockpiling all these things. And when you hoard, it's a, it's a sign that you've stopped relying on God. Hoarding is an attitude that exalts what you've managed to provide, not what God has managed to provide. And it eats away at our faith. Why would you dare to pray, give us this day our daily bread, as Jesus taught us to pray, if you've got enough in your pantry to last for months? Now, I'm not suggesting that you, you only put in your pantry what is good for today, that you, you, know, you ought to go to the store every day. Well, we don't have time for that. The, the attitude is not what's in the pantry. The attitude is, this is a gift from God, or look at what I've been able to provide. It all depends on me. You see, whatever you have, if you look at that and you say, this is God's gift to me. God gave me this job. God has given us this food. God has given us this home. Then you're depending upon God. And you will never be content if you decide that it all depends on you. If you trust God, you can be satisfied. If you're trusting yourself, you're always killing yourself to get to that next level of contentment. You'll never get there. Here's the second attitude. Not only does this attitude, it all depends on me, kill us, this is another one that will kill us. It's all about me. It's all about me. People who are content realize that not everything is going to go their way in life, and that's okay. 
People who have to be at the center of everything or always have to have it their way are seldom content because in this world, it's not going to be that way. You, you're not going to find people who agree on everything. No one gets his way or her way all the time. But it's counterintuitive, this concept of God. Intuitively, you think, I've got to look out for number one. I've got to take care of me. Nobody else is going to take care of me. And so it's all about me first. And once I get me taken care of, then I can think about other people. And that is so contrary to what God is saying. It's counterintuitive. Actually, it works just the opposite. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, what do you think of? I think of this great sermon that Jesus preached that gives us insight on contentment. I think the whole sermon's about contentment, actually. This theme of how do you, how do you live a life that is godly and contented in this world? As a matter of fact, if you haven't done any Bible reading today, uh, this evening or this afternoon, whenever you go home, you do your Bible reading, turn to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and just read the Sermon on the Mount again. It's a great sermon. I'm going to give you a summary this morning of that, and you listen to see how God tells us to take care of ourselves, will you? All right, you listen. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by telling us to live by the Beatitudes, or the be happy attitudes, and your reward will be great in heaven. Become salt and light. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. And when somebody sues you for your shirt, give them your coat also. Treat others like you want to be treated yourself. Murder? I tell you, don't even be angry with someone. As a matter of fact, I don't want your gift if you're angry until you go and make it right with that person that you offended. So go and apologize and then bring your offering to me and I'll accept it. Adultery? Not on your life. Be faithful to your spouse. Don't go making promises that you can't keep either. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And love your enemies. That way they'll know that I love them even more. Help the poor and the needy. Spend time in prayer. Learn how to sacrifice through fasting. And the more you collect here, just know the more you'll worry about what you've collected. And worry won't help you live better or live longer. The Father knows what you need. So stop worrying and trust him for all of your tomorrows, just like he takes care of the flowers and the birds. And quit trying to point out everybody else's faults. Just get rid of that log in your own eye that distorts your ability to see clearly. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. The Father will answer and provide. Stay on the straight and narrow. Avoid those who speak falsehood and build your life on the solid rock because everything else around that is shifting sand. And when you build on the rock, you'll be able to survive life's storms. That's the Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell. Now, did you hear anywhere where Jesus said, you're the most important, it's all about you, look out for number one and you'll be happy? To the contrary. Everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount is about being focused on others and being focused on God and trusting him to provide. That is the secret to contentment. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's all about God. And when you discover that, then contentment will come. And a third bad attitude that will keep us from being content is the attitude of, it's all for me. It's all for me. Having wonderful things or even great wealth is not bad. Many in the Bible had great wealth, but these men and women used their wealth as a tool to be a blessing. Lavish self-indulgence, on the other hand, is never a reflection of Christ. Oddly, if we conclude it's all for me, everything I've got is for me, then 
it'll never be quite enough. And if it's never quite enough, you'll never find contentment and satisfaction because you can't be satisfied if it's not quite enough. Isn't it interesting? What seems right is generally the opposite of what creates right. Elvis Presley, whose music is still popular after his death 35 years ago this month, is a fitting example of this. I, I think Elvis wrestled all of his life. At one time, he had considered going into ministry. I think he struggled with this contentment issue and this wealth issue all of his life. By the way, did you know that the current number of Elvis impersonators exceeds 50,000? At that rate, in two decades, they will take over the world. <laughs> here, here, here was where Elvis' struggle was. At the time that Elvis died, he had three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls Royce, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons, a Jeep, a custom touring bus, and three motorcycles. His favorite car was his 1960 Cadillac limousine. Now listen to this description of this. 1960. This goes back a long time, all right? Listen to the description of this car. The top was covered with pearl white naugahyde, and the body was sprayed with 40 coats of specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds. Nearly all the metal trim was 18 karat gold plated. It contained two gold flake telephones, a gold vanity case uh, which held an electric, gold electric razor and hair clippers. The car had an electric shoe buffer, a gold-plated television, a record player, an amplifier, an electrical system for operating any kind of household appliance, and a refrigerator that was capable of making ice in precisely two minutes. When Elvis died, he died lonely and unhappy because he was always struggling for that contentment. And I think deep down in his heart he knew that the only place to be happy was in his faith. After Brock Lesnar left professional wrestling at the age of 27, he made this observation. He said, I'm just a regular guy. Money's just money. I've been a poor dairy farmer in western South Dakota, and I've been a millionaire, and I wasn't any happier. I'm here to remind you this morning that you'll never be content if you think it's all for you. So, so how do we find contentment then? You say, well, I guess I'll have to look in my marriage or my work or my job or my education or my parenting or my upbringing. No, 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 no. Contentment should be in every one of those, but that's not the source of your contentment. Your contentment should bleed into your marriage and your home and your work and your job and your education and everything else, but that's not the source of your contentment. Your contentment is a perspective that grows out of a healthy relationship with the Lord. L listen again to what the Apostle Paul wrote about being content to the people who were worshiping in the city of Philippi. Philippians chapter 4 reads like this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. There it is, the last statement. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's the source of contentment. He could be content with anything as long as he was in Christ. Can you say the same? Is that the source of your contentment this morning? A relationship with Jesus Christ? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 6 says, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil 
and chasing after the wind. What a powerful verse. The answer is found in the sense of balance, a sense of contentment with what you have and who you are. In the Hebrew, this word that we translate tranquility is actually quietness. How, how great is that? One handful of quietness is better than two fistfuls of clawing, scraping, striving, shoving, and struggling. Less with contentment is better than more with strife. That's not how the world defines success, but it's how God defines satisfaction and contentment. Consider these words from Proverbs 15. <laughs> I like this. It is better to have little with fear for the Lord than to have great treasure with turmoil. A bowl of soup with someone you love is better than a steak with someone you hate. <laughs> Isn't that true? You can have the finest meal at all, but if you're in company that you don't care for or who doesn't care for you, that, that meal means nothing. But a simple bowl of soup with somebody you love, oh, that's a beautiful picture. You see, contentment is recognizing that collecting things, no matter how good they are, won't make you a winner. Jewel Whitaker, the wife of a man who won the lottery of $314 million, said, I wish all this would never have happened. I wish I would have torn that ticket up. Contentment is found in relationships. It's a bowl of soup with someone you love. It's a relationship with the one who can give you the soup and everything else. Contentment is being satisfied with where God has you in life. Are you always looking for greener pastures? Do you flip from one thing to another, never really finishing anything because you aren't content with where God has you? Stuart Briscoe, author and pastor, once asked a young man, he said, what do you do? And he replied, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised as a machine operator. Isn't that neat? You see, when you feel that way, you'll be content. Doesn't matter where your job is. Doesn't matter what you do. Who, what do you do? I, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I just work at this job here. I just operate this machine. I just drive this vehicle. I just serve in this school. I just, and the list goes on. Contentment is also being satisfied with who you are. Now, I don't mean to be complacent if there's improvement that is needed in your life. Or, and I certainly don't mean to be narcissistic. I really like who I am. That's not my point. But to be comfortable in your own skin, not always wishing that you were someone else. Do you find yourself looking at others and say, oh, I wish I was him. I wish I was her. You need to be comfortable with who God created you and realize that there will be other people with gifts that you don't have and abilities and talents that you don't have and possessions that you may never have, and that's okay because you're comfortable with who God wants you to be. I was reminded of this truth several years ago when we were on vacation. The girls were a lot younger at that time, uh, and, and we were at SeaWorld, okay? We were doing one of the theme parks. Now, just for the record, just for the record, I do have a sense of, sense of rhythm. Music has always been a part of my life. I played tennis in college, but when it comes to doing something like a dance move, the message gets lost between here and my feet. I don't know why, I, it just is. 
And I don't know if I just have this look of a sap or not, but on more than one occasion at these theme parks, at these shows that you go to, I've been picked out of the audience to come up onto the stage and do something, much to the chagrin of my family. It's not because I want to do it, it just, it just happens. And at this particular show, it was sort of a Hawaiian show, and they got us up on the stage with some of these Hawaiian dancers, and they put grass skirts on us. So you can imagine, I am mortified at this point in time to begin with, and then they turned the music on and were all to do the twist. I thought I could do the twist. I can't do the twist. I... <laughs> and the announcer looked at me and said, man, you look like a weed whacker. <laughs> and you know what? I'm okay with that. I know that I don't have that gift and ability, and it's okay. God didn't find a need for me to have that kind of ability, but he's given me other things. You'll, you'll never have everything in your life the way you want it to be. You just have to come to grips with who you are and how God has created you. Howard Hendricks tells of a time when his flight was delayed and, and people on the plane were getting terribly disgruntled and they were arguing with the flight attendants. And you know and I know that a flight attendant has no control over whether the plane gets off the ground in time or not. They're just simply there to try and make the passengers on that flight comfortable. And he watched one who was particularly kind and gracious in the midst of such animosity. And he called her over to the side and he complimented her for showing grace in a tough situation. And she smiled and she said, Sir, I don't work for the airline." I work for Jesus Christ. And this morning before I left work, my husband and I prayed that I would be able to serve Christ on my job. There's a woman who's learned to be content, comfortable in her own skin, knowing that a bowl of soup with somebody that she loves is better than everything else in the world who is serving the one who gives us contentment. A few years ago when, when uh, we were in India, on my last evening in India, I spoke at a church in the city of Sagar. And uh, it is a university city, much like Bloomington is. And we met the preacher and his wife, and, and they were so excited. This church was meeting outdoors. And they had just purchased a small plot of land on which to build a church building. And they were just ecstatic and celebrating. They took me to see this plot of ground. And I got to tell you, folks, for those of us who live here in southern Indiana, it looked, looked like a rather large garden plot. There wasn't anything growing on it but some weeds, but that's about the size of it. I mean, there just was not much land there. We're not talking acres. We're talking parcels, pieces here, small pieces. And they were just thrilled to death. And we rejoiced, we had a wonderful evening, but it was not until we got home that I got the news that that preacher shortly after we'd been there, the neighbors that lived close to him lied to the police about him and his wife. And the police came and drug him out in front of the hotel and beat him for an hour till he couldn't walk. But I want you to know that didn't deter him. I didn't change his direction or his course in life because he was content that he was able to suffer for Christ and he went on preaching and teaching right there, building that church. Wow, that's contentment. That's how you keep from breaking the 10th commandment. You find yourself satisfied with who Jesus Christ is in your life.